0: Good morning. Please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What we celebrate today is the basis for our faith in Christ, the resurrection of Jesus. We're going to read 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 11. I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we read God's word this morning. The Holy Spirit spoke through Paul these words. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born. He appeared to me also, for I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed." This is God's word, and Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for your presence here. We pray, Lord, you'd speak to us, that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in your word, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. We are all hopers. We're hopers. We set our hopes on all sorts of things, on circumstances, on jobs, on finances, on relationships. We often get disappointed when things don't work out the way we had hoped. But what exactly is hope? We usually think of it as hoping that something uncertain will come to pass, that hoping that something uncertain will work out. But in the Bible, hope is something quite different. Hope is not wishful thinking based on uncertainty. It is the expectation of future blessing based on promises and facts. Unlike our English word, hope in the New Testament sense contains no uncertainty. It points to something certain but not yet realized. Future hope. Some have it and some don't. And it's possible to have hope for the future because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. In our scripture passage for today, the Apostle Paul rests his whole argument on the undisputed fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. On the third day after Jesus died, his tomb was found to be empty. On that same day, some of his followers began to report that Jesus was alive and had appeared to them. The resurrection of Jesus is the pivotal point on which all of Christianity hinges and without which none of the other truths would matter. The hope of the resurrection lies behind all of what Paul discussed in 1 Corinthians, some very practical matters for the church in terms of loving and caring for one another and the unity of the body of Christ, and it all was flavored by the resurrection. For Paul, this meant that the hope of the Christian life finds its reward in the blessing that awaits God's people at the return of Christ. We have hope for the future. Now, today what I want to do is address two aspects of Christian hope, the basis of our hope and also the boundary of our hope. What is it based on and is it limited in any way? For those who have biblical hope, I pray these words encourage and strengthen your heart. For those who do not have hope in the biblical sense, I pray that God uses these words to draw you into a relationship with himself that will change your life. You would walk out of here different, never to be the same. So the first thing that we'd like to look at today is the basis of our hope. And the first observation I'll make regarding the basis is that it is based on good news, not bad. In verse 1, Paul says, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel that I preach to you which also you received and which also you stand, by which also you are saved. Christ dying for our sins is not bad news. I know it's very easy to think of the crucifixion and the agony that Jesus went through and to feel sorry for Jesus. It's good news because Jesus bore our sin, bore our curse for us, and then was resurrected from death. Paul says, the gospel that I preach to you, I'm making known to you. In verses 3 and 4, he's going to talk about the content of the gospel. But here he describes how the gospel can benefit a life. The gospel is only of benefit if it is received and believed. And one stands in it. Stands in the truth of it. Lives in light of it. The gospel means literally good news. When we have good news, we want to share it, don't we? We want to shout it out. We want to tell as many people as possible our good news. Preach means to announce good news. It came from the same word. Gospel preaching is proclaiming the cross of Christ. The gospel is is in essence the good news of Christ crucified. In Christ alone, our hope is found. Paul is pointing the Corinthian believers to their common hope based on the good news of the gospel. He calls them brethren. He's writing to believers. He loves them. He, he wants them to see that what he is sharing is what they had accepted as truth earlier. There were some in the church That rejected the resurrection. They did not reject the resurrection of Jesus, but they rejected the resurrection of people on the last day when Christ returns. He had preached this gospel to them. They had received it. They had stood firm in it. With all the problems in the Corinthian church, and there were many, they stood firm. They held fast to this truth. They were saved by it. He gives them a warning against worthless faith. He says, if you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless, of course, you believed in vain. See, if they held fast to what they had been taught, it would evidence that their faith was genuine. If not, it would show that their faith was not real. It doesn't mean that they could lose their salvation It meant that if they were truly saved, they would hold fast the truth because God held them fast. God held on to them. And the fact that God holds on to us is good news. We waver. We're weak. We're prone to error. But our hope is based on the good news of the gospel of salvation, not of condemnation. John 3.16 is very well known. I could say part of it before I became a believer. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And the next verse says this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But that the world should be saved through him. That's good news. Secondly, our hope is based on truth, not lies. It's based on God's truth revealed in his word, the Bible. Verses 3 and 4 reveal the heart of the gospel. Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance. There was nothing else more important than what I shared with you here. He had received it, and he shared it, and it was that Christ died for our sins, What does it mean that Jesus died for our sins? I mean, many noble men and women have died for causes. They've died horrible deaths for righteous causes throughout the centuries. What did the death of Jesus do for our sins? At some point before he died, before the veil was torn in two, before he cried out, it is finished, an awesome spiritual transaction took place. The Father laid upon Jesus all the guilt and all the wrath that our sin deserved. And he bore it upon himself perfectly, totally satisfying the wrath of God for us. And as horrible as the physical suffering of Jesus was, this spiritual suffering, the act of being judged for sin in our place, this was the cup. This was the cup of God's righteous wrath that Jesus trembled at drinking. On the cross, Jesus became, as it were, an enemy of God who was judged and forced to drink the cup of the Father's fury so that we would not have to drink that cup. He did it in our place. That's the truth of the matter. In Isaiah, chapter 53, a well-known passage of scripture pointing to the sufferings of Christ. In verse 3, we read, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. That's the truth of the matter. Our sins were responsible for the death of Christ. He did not die for a political cause. He did not die as an enemy of the state or for someone's envy. He died for our sins. Jesus did not die as a mere martyr for a cause. He died to pay the penalty so that we might be forgiven and delivered from our sins. So Paul says Christ died for our sins and that he was buried Christ was buried. This points to the reality of his death and also the reality of his resurrection. We are reminded of an empty tomb. Only the resurrection can account for this. Christ had really died. He was buried in a tomb. We don't often think of the burial of Jesus as part of the gospel, do we? But it is. The burial of Jesus is important for for several reasons. It's proof positive that he died because you don't bury someone unless they really died. And his death was confirmed at the cross before he was taken down to be buried. His burial is also important because it fulfilled the scriptures which declared, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich at his death, Isaiah 53. He was buried in the tomb of a rich man. Jesus was buried. Jesus died for our sins. He was buried. And then he was raised on the third day. He came back to life. The Old Testament scriptures had foretold it. Witnesses had attested to it. Everything Jesus taught hinged on the resurrection. He said to his disciples, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed And after three days, rise again. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Now, as only one piece of evidence, an empty tomb would equate roughly to a modern-day news report that a body had been taken missing from a local morgue. Multiple explanations could account for it. Tomb robbers could have stolen Jesus' body. Local authorities immediately said that had happened, actually. In that day, they bribed false witnesses to say that Jesus' friends had taken his body. Matthew 28, 11-15. A second possibility is that Jesus' enemies could have taken the body. It seems that Mary Magdalene, the first eyewitness of the empty tomb, theorized that Jesus' body had been taken... He said, they had done it. Where have they taken him? She may have been thinking of the authorities that condemned and crucified Jesus. In later times, skeptics have proposed other explanations for an empty tomb. One that is that they visited the wrong tomb, got the wrong address. Another is that Jesus didn't actually die. He just slipped into a a deep coma from which he was revived in the cool tomb. He swooned. Obviously, the Bible gives no place for such ridiculous ideas. If the followers of Jesus had taken his body, they would not have suffered and died in carrying out the proclamation of a resurrected Christ. Martyrs and liars are not cut from the same cloth. People have died for their devotion to a lie, yes. But not while believing the object of their devotion is a lie. There's more evidence. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. And he appeared. He was seen by eyewitnesses to Peter, and then to the 12, and then to more than 500 brethren at one time, then to his half-brother James, then to all the apostles, and then lastly as to one untimely born, to Paul. One man like Peter could have been the victim of a hallucination when he thought that he had seen the risen Christ. It is less possible that the 12 could all have been deceived. But when more than 500 all agree in their testimony, the fact to which they witness is not open to reasonable doubt. When Paul wrote this, he said, he appeared to over 500 brethren at one time, most of whom are still alive right now when he wrote it. Some had died. But most of them were recognized and known and could attest to that fact. It's truth. You know, why is it that every year about this time for the last several years, there has been a direct attack on the Christian faith? It's because the resurrection is the cornerstone of the Christian faith. It rises and falls on Jesus really doing what the Bible said he did. It's the target of Satan's greatest attacks on the church. Last year it was the Judas Gospel story. Before that it was the Da Vinci Code stuff. This year it was the Jesus family tomb hoax. Many can see right through those lies to the truth. But many who are ignorant of the truth, sadly, even many believers, Are drawn into that falsehood. You see, everything Jesus did was according to the scriptures. And the question is do we believe the Word of God to be the Word of God? It does not rest on our subjective opinion, but on God's objective truth. And if you do not believe the Word of God, you will believe in all sorts of myths, truths, and lies. If you don't believe the word of God, you do not have biblical faith. Romans 10 tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Sadly, though, most of us treat our cell phones better than we treat our Bibles. We're more careful with them. We take them with us more often. What would happen if you treated your Bible like you treat your cell phone? You know... Uh, You would protect it, you would carry it around with you in your purse or your pocket, you'd flip through it several times a day or even several times an hour, even right now. You'd go back to get it if you you forgot it. You'd use it when you travel. You'd treat it like you couldn't live without it. If we treated our Bible like we treat our cell phones, there would be a lot less deceived believers because we would know the truth. Jesus said, "The truth will set you free." There's a third thing that our hope is based upon. It's based upon grace, not works. Look at verse nine. Paul said, "I am on the least of the apostles. I'm the least." He considered himself totally unworthy of God's grace. It was when he was on his way to Damascus that Jesus appeared to him. God transformed the persecutor Saul into the preacher Paul. Paul the apostle. And he remembered his actions as a persecutor of the church. He said, I'm not worthy. I persecuted the church of God. And the very church he wanted to destroy, Jesus in his grace brought him into and made him one of the foremost leaders. But his focus here is not merely on what he had done wrong, but on what Christ had done in his life. Verse 10, he said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me did not prove vain. His grace toward you is effective. His grace towards us will do what God intends. Praise God. His grace saves us and changes us. Paul used to be a persecutor of the church. But how can we we account for the fact that he so quickly began to preach Jesus Christ as Lord? The very gospel he tried to, to destroy. God changed his life, all by grace, undeserved, unearned, unworked for. You may not feel worthy. You may feel like you have to work for your salvation. But I'll tell you what it rests on God's goodness, it rests on God's faithfulness, it rests on God's sovereignty. He does what is right, always. He does not lie, ever. He is in control. We're disqualified due to sin, but we're back in the game because of grace. And we cling to God's verdict uh, the not guilty verdict, the freedom for prisoners verdict. There's a verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In the last couple weeks, I probably listened to this verse on my Bible on CD probably 20 times. And I'm not lying. Every time I heard this verse, I smiled. I smiled. It's 1 Corinthians 1.30. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. See, if our salvation was by works, we'd have a lot to boast about, wouldn't we? But we have nothing to boast about because it is all by grace. 100%. By his doing, we are in Christ. If you're in Christ right now, it is by God's doing. Added to the convincing evidences of an empty tomb, resurrection appearances, and the amazing growth of the Christian movement, Was something else. It was the experiential basis for the early followers believing the resurrection of Christ. Their lives were dramatically and permanently changed through their faith in and ongoing relationship with the risen Jesus. The Holy Spirit promised by Jesus to come to them when he left made the presence of Christ continually and convincingly real to them and to us as well. What else could account for the transformation of Peter from cowering weakling to bold preacher at Pentecost? How about uh, Jesus' brother James? It's widely thought that James was an unbeliever until he experienced an appearance of the risen Jesus. The women saw the resurrected Christ. Peter, the other apostles, and hundreds of others did too. And 20th century, 20 centuries later, the crowning proof for us of Jesus being alive from the dead is our own experience of what faith in him produces in our lives. Changed lives are a memorial to God's grace. They are proof positive that Jesus did what he said he did. Verse 11, Paul said, whether whether then it was I or they, so we preach, so we believe. Whoever preaches the message, it's the gospel message Of the grace of God in Christ apart from works that is preached and believed and it changes lives. One last thing I want to mention. The boundary of our hope. How far does it go? Does it end when this life ends? It's not just for now. It's not just for here on earth, it's for eternity. Forever. It is a living hope. 1st Peter chapter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God. That's every believer in Jesus. We have a living hope. A living hope is one that is never extinguished by circumstances. It's like living water that flows from a spring that will never run dry. It's a future hope. An eternal hope. Boundless. It's the expectation of future blessing based on promises and facts. It contains no uncertainty. It points to something certain, yet not yet realized. Christ's resurrection assures us of resurrection someday. Look at verse 50 in 1 Corinthians 15. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. The mortal will put on immortality. Jesus Christ is our hope. Our hope. If life on earth is all there is, Christians are to be most pitied. Don't let anyone rob you of your hope by telling you that all there is is what we have here on earth. 1 Corinthians fifteen twelve says, Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, and your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified against God that He raised Christ whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Look at verse 19. If we have hope in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Jesus came to earth and did what he did to be the hope of everyone who believes, of those who work. Of those who sing. He came for the quiet, the reluctant, the shy, the weary, the troubled in spirit, the sick, the lame, the dying, the desperate. He came to be the hope of little children and young married couples full of visions. He came to be the hope of old men with dreams. Of parents proud of their children. Of grandparents with tears in their eyes. He came to be the hope of grieving widows and widowers. Of mothers and fathers of children newly dead. He came to be the hope of the proud. The humble. The attentive. The distracted. No matter where we have been And where we are now heading, Jesus came to be our hope. And you may think there's nothing here after the grave. You live, you die, you're buried, you get eaten with worms. By worms. But what if you're wrong? Then you will be the most pitied. Because you did not believe the truth, but a lie. And if you're in that case Today, I invite you to come to Christ, to come to faith in the risen Christ, who died for our sins, was buried, was raised on the third day, all according to the scriptures. And he is coming back. I invite you to come to Christ, to come to faith in Christ. Those who know Jesus as their hope are to live here on earth in light of eternity. We are strangers and aliens living in a foreign country called earth. We live in a temporary place, but someday we will live in a place of permanence. All believers will someday live in heaven. A real place. There is so much more to look forward to than what we have here on earth. Our hope does not disappoint. And we are called to do what we do here on earth. Work and walk and talk and take care of what is ours to take care of. While living the words of Titus 2.13. Looking for the blessed hope and appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when the world was under the spell of the White Witch, it was winter always and never Christmas. Jesus has broken the curse of sin. So now it is Easter always. Easter always. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we praise you. We thank you for your grace, your goodness, your love. And we thank you, Lord, that all of this depends on all on you. We thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. As we sing this last song, we're going to sing, In Christ Alone, Our Hope is Found. And if you don't know Jesus, I'm going to ask you to to come down and, and see me right down here during this song. If you want to come to faith in Christ, I'll be here to pray with you. I'll just be right down over here. It's not an emotional response thing, it's a It's a cognitive thinking thing, and and you know where you are at. So if God's tugging at your heart, we'll be up here. We'd love to talk with you. It's the most important thing you can do in your life. God bless you all, and may we live in Christ, our hope.